If you have your Bibles, uh, I'd invite you to turn to uh, Genesis chapter 17. Uh, we'll be looking at the advent of God uh, in the life of Abraham. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you for gifts. Thank you for gifts of music and composers who write melodies and who play them and they move us to worship and adore you. Thank you for this sacred time to gather under your word and with your people. And Father, I pray that as we read your word and your word is meditated upon and uh, rightly divided that it would move our hearts to an increased longing for you and for your kingdom, that it would make the entrapments of this world and the flesh uh, less appealing, that you would give hope to those who are weary, that you would bring conviction to those whose hearts are hardened, and that you would bring wonder to those who have become bored with Advent and the Christmas story. Only you can do this by your spirit, through your word. I pray that you would forgive the man who stands in this pulpit of his sins. There are many. Would you, uh, in spite of my guilt, would you bless your people and exalt the name of Jesus? As he sings in his name. Amen. Genesis 17. Uh, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and he said to him, I am God Almighty or El Shaddai. And walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant." And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. And I will bless her. And she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. And he said to himself, 
Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham then said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When God had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he, when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son, Ishmael, were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Amen. May God add a blessing to uh, his word. Uh, there's a man by the name of Yuri uh, Gagarin, and he was a Russian pilot and cosmonaut, and in 1961, April of that year, he became the first man to, uh, to go into space. And the barrier between earth and the heavens had been broken. And that uh, action set off a chain of events where Americans and the Soviets at the time were competing to see who could be the first, who could be the first and you know the story. Eight years later, the Americans upped the ante. We just didn't put a man in space. We actually sent three men to the moon. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins made the four-day journey from Earth, and two of them landed on the moon while the other stayed in orbit of the moon to retrieve them. And those two men, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, put a U.S. flag on the moon and they left a plaque that reads, Here, men from planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969 A.D. We came in peace, representing all mankind. Can you imagine how life-shattering that is? That God told Abraham, he says, look, and if you can count the stars, so shall your offspring be. David in Psalm 8, he says, when I look at the moon and the stars that your hand has made, what is man that you're mindful of us, the son of man that you care for us? And here is what those astronauts did. They did what David could not have ever done, that David saw the moon and saw the stars. And here in 1961 and in 1969, humans 
did what was impossible in David's mind. They broke the barrier. They crossed the threshold. They left the planet Earth and ascended into the heavens. Now, if you know anything about the the race into space, now we're sending rovers on Mars and we're shooting satellites everywhere. And there's just this competition to go farther and faster and brighter and bigger. And what I want to submit to you is that it's kind of the birth of what I would call reverse Advent theology. You see, Advent, as we understand it, is this very big God who is almighty, internal, eternal, infinite, and holy, who condescends and who comes to the earth. And us, in our brokenness, right, we we have bought into this reverse Advent theology where we who are little, we want to be great, and we want to put our flags on the moon and say we have conquered. And here is a tension. There's a tension that exists that as we make places for ourselves to go higher and faster and better. You want to know what I think happens? We minimize the beauty of when the Almighty One, the creator of the heavens, humbles himself and he comes to earth. And because we're on this rat race of reverse Advent theology, we want to make a name for ourselves. We want the next biggest and brightest thing. We want our names to go in the history books. We want to be the first to put a flag on the moon that as we live into that theology, you want to know what starts to not seem as a big deal? It's true Advent theology. That our mouths ought to drop. Our hearts ought to leap. Our souls ought to dance when we think that God Almighty would take on flesh and humble himself and become a man and cry and need milk. What's the cure? What's the cure? If you're like me, the Christmas story gets old, it gets familiar. It doesn't move me like it ought to move me. What, what's the cure? It's seeing Advent for what it truly is. And God, by the Holy Spirit, reminding us once again, it's not about us reaching up to God. The beauty of the message of the Bible is that God is on a mission to come to earth to redeem you. And we stake our lives there. And so what I want to do, I want to ask two questions. So it'll be two questions. There'll be four sub points for the first question and one really quick closing to apply the second question. First, what do we learn about God in Advent? And I'm gonna give you four things. And then I'll quickly say, how do you respond? What do we learn about God in the Advent? The first thing that we learn is he wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. Now, the Advent of Jesus is one of numerous Advents in the Bible. Advent simply means the arrival of the important one. 
the coming, the, the con- condescending of the important one. And when you read the Bible, you realize that Jesus' advent, it fits in a series of advents. In other words, in, in John chapter 16, Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to go and return to my father. And when I go, your hearts will be sad. But I have asked the father to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will arrive. He will come. He will break in. And when you get to the book of Acts, that's what you see. The Holy Spirit comes from heaven as the sound of a rushing wind. And he comes upon the disciples. That's an advent. When the disciples look at Jesus as he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, the angels say, hey, what are you looking up for? The same Jesus who has ascended, one day he's going to come back down and return in the same way that you saw him go up. That's an advent, right? And it's in our passage. I don't know about you, but it's easy to not pay attention to it because we're so familiar with our Bibles. But look at the opening line in verse 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. Now underline that word appeared. Now why do I want you to underline it? Because if you turn over to verse 22, what does this say in verse 22 of the same chapter, when he had finished talking with him, God went back up from Abraham. You get the image? God comes down and God leaves. And it happens again in in chapter 18. Notice what it says in chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Now that ought to, your mind ought to be buzzing because this isn't the first time the Lord came to somebody In Genesis, he came to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves in trees. And now all of a sudden you have God coming to Abraham in the heat of the day by these trees. It's a thing that God is making contact. He's breaking in. And then if you look at the end of chapter 18, verse 33, it says, and the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. You see what's happening in this passage alone. God's coming down, God's going up. God's coming down, God's going up. And this is not the only place. In Genesis 15, it says, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. In Genesis 20, when Abraham lies to Abimelech about Sarah, his wife, it says God showed up in Abimelech's dream and says, if you touch her, you're a dead man. In Genesis 12, 1, it was the Lord who said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, and your land to the land that I will show you. In other words, if you look at Genesis 12 through Genesis 18, you're getting these, where God just comes down. He says what he's going to say, does what he wants to do. And it goes up. Now, there is mystery here. I don't know where God went up to. Maybe he's coming from glory. He comes down. He speaks. He moves. He acts. And then he withdraws. He comes down. And then he withdraws. 
He manifests himself and then he clothes himself in distance in return to whatever God was doing. There's mystery there, but do not miss what's happening in Genesis. God is breaking in through dreams, through visions, through appearances, through angels. And in Genesis 18, he comes in the form of three men, which is mind-blowing. Now, there's something called catfishing. And, I'm, and I know some of y'all in the room, y'all do catfish. You put buckets, right, like cut-up radiators. You put them, like, at the bottom of the reservoir. And then you let them go to the bottom and sink. And then you hope that a catfish will kind of burrow and make what you just threw in the reservoir home. And then you go back a couple weeks later and you stick your hand in those things that you drop, hoping that the catfish will clamp onto you. And then you pull it out and you got dinner, right? Some people hunt like that. It's the craziest thing I've ever, I've ever heard, right? Why would you do that? I'm not talking about that kind of catfishing. I'm talking about the catfishing in the social media world where you have a profile, someone else has a profile, they put a picture up, you put a picture up, and all of a sudden there's communication that starts to happen. And then now you can kind of talk on the phone through Skype, through Facebook. But catfishing is when the other person on the receiving end, they're telling you one thing. I care about you. I know you. you we're friends. But when it comes to showing up, well, can we just FaceTime? Can we meet and go out for a date? They always have these excuses. My Wi-Fi isn't strong enough. I work offshore oil rig and I can't get to you. I had to stay at work late. In other words, they're deceiving you. They're telling you one thing and their actions aren't aligning. And here's the thing. The God of the Bible is not catfishing his people. He says he loves you. He says he wants you. And what you see in Genesis is he will do anything to break in. Visions, dreams, theophanies, showing up at your tent by, uh, by trees. You get the image? And what is God saying through all of this? He's saying, I want to be with my people. And it's not because we've won his affection. It's not because we were on the list of the most holy people in the world. God told Israel, I want you because I want you. Not because you're a strong nation, not because you are a powerful nation. God told the Corinthians, I chose you not because you were wise and not because you were of noble birth. I choose the weak things. When Jesus chose disciples, he did not go to the rabbinical school of theology. He went around the Sea of Galilee and got unlearned fishermen. That there is this overarching theme in Scripture that God loves his people and he breaks in and he pursues his people and he will manifest himself to his people. He will deliver his people. And here's the thing. I don't know what messages you have heard about yourself. Because there are times when we feel undesirable. And there are times when we feel that no one wants us. 
And there are times when we feel that we are not worthy to be loved. And Advent tells you, do not listen to those voices. Your God is drawing near to break in because he loves you and he wants you. And you can't earn that. It's the first thing Advent teaches us. He wants to be with his people. He will come near. The second thing we see in this passage is he's a timely God. Genesis 17 begins with those important words. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. Now he's 99, y'all. He's, he is pushing 100, and his wife is pushing 90. And the Lord comes to him and, and says, hey, I'm going to establish my covenant with you, and one of those blessings will be a son by Sarah, and she's 90. And then God actually says this time next year in verse 21, you will have a son. So that means that from the time God leaves, within three to four months they conceive, then they both have a birthday. And by the time they're celebrating their 100th birthday and their 90th birthday, bam, they have a child. And here's the thing that Genesis is tracking with this first family. It's actually telling us how long have they been waiting? Genesis 12 says that Abraham, or Abram at that point, was 75 years old when he left his father's house. And they waited on that son for 10 years. And when he was 85, he slept with Hagar at Sarai's wishes and conceived Ishmael. And another 13 years pass, and that gets us to this passage. And so now Abraham is a, he is a quarter of a century, a quarter of a century from following the Lord and waiting on the Lord. And the Lord comes not when he's 75, 76, 77. This 75-year-old man is now 99, and the Lord shows up. And he says, you will have a son with this woman. And by the way, name him Isaac. Because you're laughing and she's going to laugh, but I'm going to get the last laugh because both of y'all are past the age of childbearing. And this child that's going to be born miraculously is not going to be because you are still fertile. It's going to be because I acted on my own initiative and with my power because I'm El Shaddai, the powerful one. Now, God shows up. Have you noticed that some of our favorite Disney movies always have this ticking clock in the background? What are you talking about? Think about the princess and the frog. They have to fall in love by midnight. Think about Cinderella. Think about Beauty and the Beast. This haggardly looking woman shows up at the castle and it's raining and the weather is bad and she's asking for a place of refuge. And the prince is an arrogant, beastly prince. And so the, 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 the woman gives him a rose as the only thing that she has. And he mocks her and scoffs her. Then she turns into this beautiful enchantress and she says, you have just shown me that you are not corresponding to who you really are. You're supposed to be a prince, but you're a beast. And now through my powers, I'm going to turn you into who you are. You're a beast. And then the rose. 
the petals from this rose, they will drop. And if the last one drops and you are not a changed man who's loving and who has won the affections of true love, you'll be stuck a prince forever. And you remember when beauty is thrust on the scene, how the teapots and all the, the, the dressers and all the, 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 the pots and the pans and the spoons, they're all like waiting and hoping, please, please, please fall in love because I don't want to stay a teacup forever, right? And you know how it ends. As the last petal is dropping, love wins. There's suspense, there's longing, there's waiting, there's anticipation. And here's the thing that Disney is tapping into. They're tapping into the greater love story. They're tapping into stories like this one. Where the petals are falling. And it's not the biological reproductive clock. I think the petals that are falling in Abraham's life they're petals of hope. Will this really happen? Can I really trust you? Because you've been saying this for 25 years, and I still don't have the child. You've been saying this for 25 years, and I still don't have the land. And notice how Abraham responds when God tells him this. He does three things that I think are important in the text. The first thing is he fell on his face. And then it actually says in verse 17 and 18 that he laughed. It's a mixture of worship and humor. And then it says, he said to himself, now notice this isn't Abraham talking to God. Genesis is narrating what Abraham was thinking. And here is what Abraham said to himself. Shall a child be born to a man who is 100? Shall Sarah, who is 90, bear a child? Abraham is communicating that though he's in the worshipful posture, that in his mind he is still like, can this really happen? And then finally, look at what happened. He says, oh, God, that Ishmael might live before you. That is still Abraham saying, Lord, I want to worship you, but I'm, 90, I'm 99 and she's, she's 90. I got a son over here. Here, here, make him the one. You see what's happening? Abraham is struggling here. When Sarah hears about this in the next chapter, she laughs and then the Lord hears her laughing and then she lies about not laughing that do not make the mistake and think that they're just chipper. Yeah, the Lord's going to come through. No, they're wrestling with are you believable? And here is what you see God doing in the passage. Before that last petal falls, he says, I'm clutch. I'm clutch. I will not lose you. I will not, I will not, not keep my promises to you. Do you believe that this morning? That the advent, all of the advent, they communicate to us who have to wait and wait 
and wait for all types of things. But your God is on time. That's the reason I had Candace and Akita and Arthur sing that, that song this morning by Dottie Peebles. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. He may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. You, you hear that? And then did you hear the line that Akita sang? It says that you can ask the children of Israel trapped at the Red Sea. They had water all around them and Pharaoh on their track. And from out of nowhere, God stepped in and he built a highway just like that. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. How many of y'all know that he's an on-time God, that you have been in situations and circumstances and he has been clutched and maybe you're raising money to go on the mission field. And why is God dragging support out until the last minute so that he can show you that I'm God and I do what I want to? Some of you have been waiting on things your whole life and can't you testify on this side of it? He's on time. He shows up. He does not abandon and forget about his people. That's what we're seeing in the passage. The next thing we see, the Advent teaches us, is that he is bountifully trustworthy. Bountifully trustworthy. The trustworthiness comes with this idea of a covenant. God is coming to Abraham. Did you notice how many times the word covenant comes up? He says, I will establish my covenant, my covenant. This is a top down, not a bottom up. The Lord comes to Abraham and says, I swear, I promise by myself that I will do all of these things. And if I don't do all of these things, then something happens to me. I cease to be God. He's a covenantally faithful God, and therefore he's trustworthy. But what you also see in the passage is that he is lavish and bountiful. Did you get the, 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 the number of times he lavishes? This is like Christmas in Genesis. He comes to Abraham as a hundred-year-old man and says, brother, I got a whole bunch of goodness I'm about to lavish on you. First thing, I will make you fruitful. All the families of the nations will be blessed by you. Kings will come from you. Nations will come from you. And I'll give you a son. Doesn't that sound a lot like Genesis? Where God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and to rule and subdue it. And now God is saying, I'm going to give you kings who will rule and I'm going to make you fruitful. I'm going to fill the earth and it's going to come through you, Abraham. That's like bounty. Then he says, and my covenant is an everlasting covenant. It's not just with you. It's for your offspring, your seed after you. He says, your children, they're going to be mine. My covenant is with them also. And he says, I'm going to give you land. At this point, look at verse 7. Abraham is a sojourner. He is moving about the land in his tent. And so in Genesis 18, God comes to him at his tent, and that is to be compared to where Lot is living. 
Lot is living in Sodom and Gomorrah, and we know that there is a gate, which means that there, there's a wall around this city. We know that Lot, the, the home for where Lot lives, is not the same word for home where Abraham lives. Lot is living in a palace, and Abraham is living in a tent. And the door on Lot's house, it's a door that can be shut, and not a little thing that can kind of be moved and flapping. You get this image that Abraham is out here living in a tent and is moving about place to place. And Lot is over here in a fortified city. And God comes to Abraham. He says, fret not, my friend. I'm going to reverse all of this. Their city over there, I'm going to destroy it. They think they're solid. They think they're stable, but they're not. And you over here who have nothing, you're going to inherit everything. This is your land. You have a place fret not. You see the goodness of God? And then Ishmael, this mistake, this, this one lapse in Abraham's judgment where he went and lay with, with, with Hagar. Look at how God treats him in verse 20. I have heard you. I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes. Notice it doesn't say kings. It says princes, and I will make him into a great nation, not nations. And so you see the contrast? God is saying, Isaac is my covenant. My covenant will come through Isaac, and he will be kings and nations. But that son over here that you love, who's 13 years old, when you disobeyed me, I'm still going to be good to him. Did you see the bounty of God there? And then Sarah, her name shall no longer be called Sarah, but Sarah, she's a queen. And I will give you a son by her and I will bless her. In verse 16, she shall become nations and kings of people shall come from her. In other words, doesn't that sound a lot like Eve? When God told Eve, you're going to have a son. And now God is working yet through another woman. My covenant is with Abraham and your queen. Now, if I'm 100 years old and God tells me all of this and the icing on the cake is an I will be your God. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Do you hear how bountiful God is? And here is the good news if you are a believer this morning. All of his promises are yes and amen in Jesus to you. You may be here and all of your friends have mortgages and have houses and you're renting. And you may look at your lot and you may feel inferior. You may feel behind. You may feel like you're not attaining to everything that you're supposed to have. And you know what God says? I got you. Does the Bible not say the meek will inherit the earth? And how many of us have those things in our past that we just we are ashamed of? And then God comes to Abraham and says, look, Israel, I got you, brother. I'm going to fix this. I got you. I'm going to cover that with grace. And maybe you're here this morning and you're haunted by your past. Do you believe the good news that in Jesus, God can say, I cover it. And maybe you're here this morning and you're worried about your children. Lord, do they know you? Lord, will they come? We know how Genesis ends. 
Isaac comes to faith, Jacob comes to faith, Joseph comes to faith, Abraham is in the ground, and the covenant of God continues on and on and on and on. You can rest parents. God loves your children more than you. And he will pursue them and will pursue their hearts and he will keep them. And did we not just see that this morning? We got children getting baptized as covenant baptisms. And then we see teenagers, teenagers coming to faith. And it's not because we got perfect parents. It's because we have a good God who is faithful to the family. He's bountiful. The last thing we learn about him in Advent is his coming in this chapter. It prepares us for another one. Every story whispers the name of Jesus. Jesus himself says that all of the scripture is about me. And John chapter 8, there's an argument between the religious leaders and Jesus. And you know what the argument was centered around? Who is Jesus? And so Jesus, they they say, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus says, well, if Abraham is your father, then you will be doing the works of Abraham. And then Jesus says, Abraham looked forward to my day and he rejoiced in it and was glad. And then they say, you're not even 50. Have you seen Abraham? And then Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. You know what Jesus was saying? I'm the one. I was with the father from the beginning. Abraham saw by faith that though God gave him, though we gave him Isaac, I was preparing him for a greater arrival. In other words, Abraham by faith saw that the true son of promise was not Isaac. It was the son who shall be called Emmanuel, for he will save his people from their sins. And isn't it beautiful irony that Sarah is pushing 90? Impossible to conceive. And Mary is an unwedded virgin. Impossible to conceive. Isn't it ironic that Abraham is pushing a hundred? And Sarah's pushing 90. You know what Luke does for us in Luke chapter 2? It actually tells us two other old people. It says that Simeon, he says, now I can go and die because my eyes have seen the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit revealed it to me that I would not see death until I laid eyes on the Lord's Christ. This is an older man who is waiting on Jesus, waiting on Jesus and waiting on Jesus. And before he dies, God says, aha, you're going to see him. And it's not just him. It's Anna. Now it's a woman. And she's a prophetess. And the text actually says she lived as a widow for 84 years and she was married for seven years. So that makes her at least 91. Sister girl is well over 100. And you know who she sees before she dies? She too sees Jesus. What is God doing? He's repeating 
this idea. And don't we believe that this son would die to bring about the promises that the true fulfillment of Abraham's hope was not Isaac? In Jesus, there is no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free, no male, no female. We're one in Christ through that son who would live and then go and die to reconcile us to the Father that we might be this beautiful, big, diverse, global family. Christians are in America right now, y'all. This was the distant land in Jesus' day. This was the ends of the earth in Jesus' day. We are the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. I will make kings and queens and nations come from you. And guess what? That is who we are in Christ right here in Jackson, Mississippi. You think Abraham could have imagined that over here in Jackson, Mississippi, we'd be standing here thousands of years later singing of the praises of the one true God. It's here in Jesus. And don't we believe that in Jesus, God has promised, I will never leave you and forsake you, and I will do something better than make these momentary drops in your life. I will indwell you by the Holy Spirit. You will never be alone. I will never depart from you. And don't we believe that Jesus is returning again, and we will have land. We will inherit the earth. And don't we believe in Revelation 21? See, I just, taught, I just taught Revelation this week in our hermeneutics class, and something just blew my mind. John says, I saw a vision. I saw the first heavens and the first earth pass away. And I saw the new city. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from above. You get the image? It's not us working our way up. If you trace the Advent theology from the beginning of the Bible to the end, God is going to come down and the new heavens and the new earth will come down and he will make his dwelling place with us. We have that Advent to come and we long for it and we will inherit the earth and we will rule with Jesus. Genesis 17 is preparing us for all of this. Now, here's the question. I want to close with this last question. How do we respond? For the God who wants to be near, for the God who is timely, for the God who is bountifully trustworthy, for the God who has prepared us for the coming of Jesus, how do we respond to that? Did you notice what God told Abraham? He said, this is my covenant. Circumcise. Eight days old up to a hundred. Everybody. And did you notice what happened when God left? Look at it. Verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up. Verse 23. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those, underline all those born in his house or brought with his money, underline every, every male among them of Abraham's house, 
and he circumcised the flesh of that foreskins and underlined that very day as God said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised. Look at verse 26. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised and all of the men of his house, those born of his house. You get the image? That when God leaves, what does Abraham do? He doesn't dilly-daddle and piddle-paddle. He immediately does every single thing God commanded him to do. He is not working himself up. Because he trusts the Lord, he responds with faithful and instant and radical obedience right then and there. That's how we respond. If you're not a believer today, you know what Advent says to you? God is bountiful, good, gracious, wants you. Will you repent? And come to him now. Because we believe that the new covenant is not a cutting of the flesh. The new covenant is the cutting away of Jesus. That we might come in and not be cut off. And maybe you're a Christian here today. How do we respond? You notice what Abraham did three times when God showed up? It says he fell on his face. He fell on his face. He fell on his face. And he obeyed. How do we respond? We worship. We adore. And we make much of Jesus. We circumcise the foreskin of our hearts. We ask ourselves, what are those things that are competing for allegiance? And we, like Abraham, we sever that by the power of the Spirit, and we turn again to Jesus anew. Abraham means exalted father, but the posture of this exalted father is face down and worship. Might that be true of us today? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we bless you and we pray for your word to do its work. Father, I pray that you will remove the scales from all of our eyes. May we be moved to wonder and awe and worship and belief and repentance as we hear the good news of Jesus. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.